Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. Drew and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, November 13th, 2022, and regular listeners to this podcast already know that Mr. Taylor often gets to do some very cool things. Drew, can you tell the nice folks where you were last night? Yes, I was at Encanto, live at the Hollywood Bowl, and I have to say that I was given these tickets by our friends at Walt Disney Animation Studios, and they were much better seats, Jim, than I would have been able to afford, so I cannot thank (laughs) them enough for the opportunity. It was really lovely, and this is going to debut on Disney Plus next month, so... I was not the only one, and the people on Friday night were not the only ones. We, you, Everyone will see this show very soon. So Okay. So for a lot of us, all we've seen so far is this, the YouTube videos of the dancing donkeys featured in uh, Surface Pressure. Yes. And there's one other clip of We Don't Talk About Bruno, but it's literally the dancers in the middle of the concert venue. Yeah. Could you believe that? Yeah. Well, what's yeah. very cool too is if you look, if you're looking at the stage, the left side of the stage, from backstage, they had a literal seven foot frame, glowing eyed Bruno that came out into the audience too. That was just one of the coolest. Oh. It was just a giant puppet. It was so neat, and oh. you know, I really give them a lot of credit because they really transformed the bowl. I mean. You know, you're looking at the stage, but it is the casita. Mm -hmm. And as the movie's playing, obviously the live orchestra is going, but there are effects and things that are projection mapped onto that space, like when she has the vision of the of the crack and you see the crack kind of, you know, spreading Mm -hmm. out to the casita because that's where you are. You're living in the casita. They had, you know, band members on the bottom and top floors of the house. I mean, it was amazing, Jim. I have never seen anything like it. It's the best thing I've ever seen at the bowl. And the best one of these, like, live-to-film presentations I think I've ever seen. We saw earlier this year Disney kind of did the same thing with Harmonious. They did a film version of that Epcot show that arguably will be the best version that's ever presented (laughs) of Harmonious because between the live performers and the camera work and that sort of thing. But in the weird sort of way, it's this historic record of, well, (laughs) this is what this show could have been. Right. And so I'm genuinely intrigued by this whole notion of doing live shows and then making them available for Disney Plus viewers. But you, you were saying available in December? Yes, I believe it's like mid-December. It'll be on Disney Plus, and it very much felt, Jim, like a trial for a Broadway musical version of the movie. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, I'd say that trial was successful because people were losing their minds. And the other cool thing was that you downloaded an app when you got there, and then mm-hmm. at different points in the show, mm-hmm. your phone would react to what was going on on stage which was very cool. Like the light would turn on and off to the beat and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was very cool. It's, it's yet another example that we really don't need the, um, you know, blinking light technology that's used at Disney parks <laughs> when you have your phone or your watch because yeah, it's all there, Jim, you know? Problem is that, that when you're, you're six years into development, it's like, yeah, we could do that on phones. Like, shut up! <laughs> We're a billion dollars in, Larry. Don't tell me that now. <laughs> By the way, speaking of Broadway, today, the 13th of November, 25 years ago today, uh, The Lion King, uh, the Julie Taymor live stage version, debuted at the New Amsterdam in New York. 
Did you get to see it? What was at the New Amsterdam? I've never seen it ever, Jim. Can you believe that? What? I know. I know. I know. How is that possible? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, it's. A, I'm very. Uh, next time I go to New York, I will make it or London. I'll make a, a trip. To okay. The show. Yeah. It's honestly kind of shocking. Anyway, folks, lots of news for this week. And as always, the news portion of the show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jimmy Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Also, over the past couple of shows, Drew and I have given lots of love to Wendell and Wild, which debuted on Netflix back on our October 21st. And likewise, we've, we've done a lot of talking up of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. But Drew, we haven't really paid a lot of attention to My Father's Dragon, which, which debuted on Netflix on Friday, November 4th. You've seen that, though, right? I haven't. I have. Ha- I will confess that I've had it for I don't know a couple of months now, but I haven't watched it yet because I've just been so bombarded with stuff every okay. night. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like uh, this is not a pity party here, but well, no, you know, no, no, like, no, 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 I, you know, <laughs> let me be clear. I haven't watched it either. Okay, <laughs> I, I okay. Was, well, you know, but but this is the thing. When you look at it, it's got. This amazing voice cast. I mean, Ian McShane, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Diane Weist, Rita Moreno, Alan Cumming, Judy Greer, uh, Jacob Tremblay, who, of course, did the, the title character in Pixar's Luca and is going to be doing Flounder in Disney's Little Mermaid next year. And then the title character, uh, Boris the Dragon in My Father's Dragon, is uh, voiced by uh, Gatan Matarazzo, they, you know, again, who plays pretty Dustin. Good, pretty good, Jim. Okay, yeah. on Stranger Things, but it's just, Drew, I live in the same place that you do. It's, you know, when the, the tsunami of stuff, especially of this time of year, come Ugh. pouring through the door, you triage. And so it was like, but again, I just felt bad because this is a hand-drawn film done by the folks at Cartoon Saloon, who we love. I mean, Wolf Walkers last year. Yeah, I mean, it, written by Meg LaFave, who wrote mm. Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur and Inside Out 2, and it seems wonderful. It looks great. So again, don't follow Drew in my example. Go watch <laughs> you know, the, yes. My Father's Dragon. And, and you tell us what you thought. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there was a Japanese animated version of this story really? um, in the, I think, late 70s. But this one seems to really kind of borrow from the book, the original book, mm-hmm. which I believe was written in the late 40s. Um, yeah, 1948 by Ruth Stiles Gannett. So. There you go. So, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I can't wait to watch this. I want to watch it when I'm not, you know, I feel like I'm cramming for a test every night when I'm coming home and watching, you know, six episodes of a show that I have to do for the next day and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah, it looks wonderful. We love Cartoon Brew. We, we, we do. Love, we do. We do. We love everybody associated with this movie. We love Nicole. We love Meg. But it's just, uh, it's just not. There's not enough hours in the day, Jim. Okay, and and we'll try to do better, folks. Now, now, now speaking of which, though, uh, we do watch the trailers when they come out. And Netflix just released a new trailer for Scrooge: A Christmas Carol, the animated musical that'll be doing debuting on that streaming service. I want to say December second. And this one's being directed by Stephen Donnelly and features reimagined songs from two-time Academy Award winner Leslie Brusick. He wrote the words and music to 1967's Dr. Doolittle, 1971's Willy Wonka, not to mention, you know, the, the James Bond theme song Goldfinger. 
what intrigues me is this this phrase reimagined songs because we lost Brusick last year at the age of 90 and his live action version of Scrooge which uh, came out to theaters in November of 1970 was reimagined for the stage in 1992 and so far I haven't seen one of the songs from either the stage musical or the live action film musical in the trailer for for this thing yet but remember how many <laughs> how many disney films have we seen trailers cut for like, like remember the original trailers for frozen that sort of stepped around the fact that it was a musical yes evidently that's the kiss of death for men you know it's like oh it's a musical i'm not going so you have an animated musical and you cut the trailer in such a way that it doesn't reveal that it's a musical but that said the trailer that they have put together for Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. I like what I've seen so far. They do a couple of really cool things. Back in those days, it was a custom that when you were getting a corpse ready for burial, you put gold coins or coins on its eyes so they would have a toll available to pay when they they had to cross the River Styx. And the Jacob Marley, as the ghost is, the ghost of Jacob Marley is depicted in the trailer, he has these these glowing gold eyes because those are the coins in his eyes. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. That was a cool touch. And yeah. every time somebody makes a run at Christmas Carol, they try to make it for audiences of today. And I was actually enjoying some of the writing that they did for the, for example, the Ghost of Christmas Past. It's a little on the nose to actually have this character say, you can't change the past, but you can learn from it. But it was interesting also to literally have the ghost of Christmas present turn to Scrooge and are, are you ready to enjoy today, as in to live in the moment? And I thought those were interesting messages, especially for today. <laughs> Something that two overworked entertainment journalists, you know, could yeah, find out. I'm living for my next hour and a half. Yeah, that's, that's my, that's as far as I can get, Jim. There we go. I also, given Nova the Wonder Dog, I thought you'd like that Scrooge now is a dog. You can't really hit a guy who's got a dog. No, I mean, that that inherently makes him more lovable than he's ever been before, I feel like. I agree. Yeah, it's interesting because we have that, and then we have a, a new mm -hmm. live-action Scrooge called Spirited with Ryan Reynolds and uh, Will Ferrell and Octavia Spencer interesting time to have these things reinvented but back to the animated version what we've got luke evans doing the voice of scrooge we've got olivia coleman who doctor who fans and and the crown fans obviously know but she's the voice of christmas past and evidently jonathan price is the voice of the ghost of jacob Marley. so looking forward to checking this out and while we're talking about holiday related stuff did you see for 2023 netflix is getting a new holiday special that keys off of the characters from DreamWorks Animations, The Bad Guys? I did. I know a little bit more about that, but I don't know if I can say it. But I will I will say that that, that is not the end. Uh, it won't be the last time we see The Bad Guys, Jim. Let's just say that. That's so cool to I think to there hear. are big plans for The Bad Guys right now at DreamWorks. So, yeah. That film worldwide grossed a quarter of a billion dollars, which... They brought in the bad guys with its amazing animated look, by the way, for just sixty million. So I can understand why they'd be circling back on on these characters. And more to the point, that film was just so much fun. 
Oh, I agree. I loved I loved that movie. And evidently the the premise of this holiday special is actually set before the film. And the idea is that the, the bad guys were planning on robbing the entire city on Christmas morning because everyone would be home opening their presents. But what disrupts their plans for a, a citywide heist is that Christmas is canceled because everybody's in a foul move. So it's up to the bad guys to do the unthinkable. They have to reignite the city's holiday spirit by giving rather than taking. So this is going to be directed by Brett Holland, who... You probably know him from his work on DreamWorks animated series like All Hail King Julian or the Monsters of the Alien series. Likewise, Kung Fu Panda, Legends of Awesomeness. But again, that's 2023, folks. And if what Drew is inferring, other bad guy goodness is headed our way soon in addition to that. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm glad that they're investing in the franchise. Speaking of other things that will obviously make you happy, let's talk about the Academy reversing its position on on Richard Linkletter's Apollo 10 and a half. Thank God. I mean, that movie is great. I was really sad about that. So I'm really happy. We've talked about that. You've seen the movie, right, Jim? You loved it, right? Yeah, yeah. I love how it toggles back and forth between what's actually going on and the child's fantasy of, you know, well, we need a tiny astronaut, so you have to train. I love how it goes from down-to-earth reality, but again, done in that that pseudo-rotoscoping style to the fantasy elements to, and, and again, as somebody who grew up watching the Apollo missions, Richard does a beautiful job in, in the team of Anders he worked with of capturing what that time was like, uh, you know, what the homes, you know, from that period were like, you know, just a, a just beautifully observed yes. detail. What was on television back then, too. Oh, God, yes. Lots of flashbacks. By the way, it's we should also note that in addition to Apollo 10 and a half being now qualifying for, for consideration for the Best Animated Feature Oscar, uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes on also managed to qualify, which is kind of intriguing. That's a lot of live action and a lot of animation. And don't they have some sort of formula they follow that there has to be so much animation in a film before it can yeah, be? Yeah, it has to be 75% animated with the main character being animated, which if you've seen the movie, I mean, it's basically live action plates with an animated character. And that's pretty much it. There's a couple of live action characters, but... Mm-hmm. You know, they're always in the periphery or out or off frame. But um, mm-hmm. this race is going to be very interesting. I, I've just heard in the past couple of days just from, you know, chatting with people because we're all on the circuit now, Jim, watching every single movie uh, mm-hmm. that it really is Pinocchio's to lose uh, at this point. This brings me to my next question, because you mentioned that you have seen a certain film made by a certain mouse. Yeah, I saw Strange World, which I really feel has been a a real kind of X factor because of how poor some of the marketing has been. Because we just don't know what it is, you know. So I really enjoyed it. I had a really fun time watching Mm -hmm. it. I want to watch it again. It's a lot of movie, but Mm -hmm. it is absolutely gorgeous. The the vocal performances are amazing. Um, and I'm very anxious to talk to you about it, Jim, because I really want to know your take on things. But I'm just glad that Don Hall got to do such a, a weird kind of idiosyncratic pulp adventure story. 
I have the art of book here. Stay away, Jim. See, that's the thing. I've been following my Drew Taylor rules, folks. It's, <laughs> it's filled in. It's a shrink wrap waiting to, to actually see the film. I'm, I'm just hoping I can I can get to a screening out ahead of its release again on, on November 23rd. You were mentioning the, the terrific voice acting, and I, I guess we should also take a moment to note here that just in the past week, we lost Kevin Conroy, the gentleman who has been voicing Batman since the Batman the Animated Series back in 92. He voiced the character in over 60 projects, Jim. 60! Can you imagine that? And that's 15 of those DC original films. Also, 15 different animated series, not to mention over two dozen video games. He had this amazing run at the character, but DC Comics has made the DC Pride 2022 number one. They made that free to read this past week because Kevin wrote a a semi-autobiographical story that was turned into a comic for this issue where he talked about being a gay man who trained at Juilliard and struggled in the industry and then one day came in to audition to be the voice of Batman. And, you know, they were explaining to him that their perception of the character for the, the animated series was that Bruce Wayne was the mask. This was the character that he pretended to be out in the world. and that, that But Batman was the real character. The, the thing is that Kevin, as, as a gay man who had to pretend to be straight for years and years and years to get roles in Hollywood, it's like he instantly got what this character was. And so the fact that for an entire, several generations of animation fans and game fans and that sort of, Kevin was Batman. Oh, yeah. To understand why the performance was so good was he lived this in real life, that he had to pretend to be straight to audition all of those years to try to get work. And now finally he had the role where he had, I understand exactly what's going on with this character. And that's why his Batman was so good. But Yeah, I'm, di- I'm dying to read that. Uh, do you know who his roommate was at Juilliard, Jim? No, who? Robin Williams. No! Are you yeah. kidding me? No. Oh. Yeah. Damn. Both gone too soon. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a killer story. All right, well, again, yeah. folks, head on over to DC Universe Infinite. And I mind you, it's kind of a convoluted process, but do seek out DC Pride 2022, number one, and read this amazing story that Kevin put together. But again, we lost him this week at 66 to cancer, and it just it was too soon. Speaking of things that you want to go out of way to do your way to read, Drew and I, for the past year or so, have been tracking a book about the history of Disney Feature Animation Florida. The title of the book, folks, is The Disney Animation Renaissance, Behind the Glass at the Florida Studio. And because of the pandemic, the publication data of this thing has been sliding back and forth you know, constantly. In fact, the most recent time I checked, it wasn't supposed to be out till December 27th. But I got a tip from a friend who said, hey, I'm, I'm reading the book right now. So ran over to Amazon and they still had it listed as having a November 22nd date until you hammered on the button to order the thing. And sure enough, they have them in stock right now. But this is 
Mary Lesher's book, and she was an animator, art historian, and a museum curator. She actually worked as a camera person and scene planner at Walt Disney Feature Animation and Disney Toon Studios. She started with the company back in 89 and continued on till the layoffs in 2006. But this thing, which is coming from the University of Illinois Press, just been hearing great, great stuff about four years. So Drew and I are both getting our hands on copies of this. Mine's supposed to arrive today. And we will talk further about it on the show. And hopefully maybe we can get somebody who was involved with, with finishing up the manuscript. Because again, we lost Mary back in 2019 to come on and talk about this. We need to Now we need to figure out where Stephen Anderson's book is about the lost years. I think it was called The In-Between Years, Yes, right? yes, yep. We got one in the bag, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> we finally got this one. But yeah, we'll, let's poke at Stephen and see if we can get an update on that. And when we get back, Drew and I will chat a bit about what's happened on this date in the past. And likewise, uh, what Mr. Chapek has had to say over the last week to 10 days. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just yesterday, Nancy and I got a bill for a renewal of Disney+. Plus. We were one of the folks who, when they offered the, th- the three-year deal at D23, we, an introductory rate, they grabbed it. And so that deal expired. And we're now you know, renewed for, for the next year into 2023. So this is supposedly D23 day, November 12th is the day that they launched D23. But back on September 8th of this year, Disney declared that was D23 Day. Back in November 2021, we got the plus-aversary, the Simpsons thing. But on the other hand, for this year's supposed Disney Plus Day, we got the Welcome to the Club thing where Lisa, the Disney villains are trying to recruit Lisa and then to further muddy the water, we got a Simpsons short back in on May 4th, uh, 2021, The Force Awakens from its nap. What's the real D23 day? Because wasn't that the whole point of the Zen, Grogu, and the Dust Bunnies things that just dropped yesterday, that this was supposed to be for D23 day? Well, did you get the press release? Because the wording on it was very interesting that it said, it is the anniversary of the introduction of Grogu. Mm-hmm. They were saying it was more like the inter- the anniversary of the Mandalorian more than it was Disney Plus Day, which hmm. I thought was very interesting. And obviously, 
they're looking out for that February 2023 start date for, for Mandalorian season three. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I swore Jim that I was like, they're going to do another bundle deal at D 23 this year. Mm-hmm. And they did not. And we're all paying four extra dollars or whatever it is. I think also given the news on Friday that we got from Mr. JPEG about the hard decisions that the company has to make going forward here between the hiring freeze and the layoff that came on the heels of the most recent quarterly call, which Wall Street reacted very, very poorly to that they we saw what a 12% drop off in the value of the Disney company stock. Did you see what Jim Cramer said just Thursday, Friday about it's clearly time for Bob Chapek to go to be fired? No, I didn't see that. But if you can't trust a man who screams all day for a living, <laughs> who can you trust? Okay. I'm gonna, next time you see me, Jim, I'm in this room. I'm going to have a bunch of buttons around and I'm just going to scream and hit there press you buttons. Go. You know. You'll probably do quite well. <laughs> Bob Chapek has officially been on the job since January of 2021, right? Yeah. I know that Mr. Chapek is very controversial with Disney fans. They don't necessarily like what he's doing to the company. But I have to admit, at this point, what's intriguing about Bob is I'm getting used to him. The whole notion of, okay, well, once again, Mr. Chapek said the quiet part out loud. And he was talking about the future of the Disney company seems to be in streaming. But at the same time, anybody who's been paying attention about what's been going over at Warner Brothers Discovery or likewise Peacock. I mean, there's a lot of people who have bet quite heavily on this being the future of entertainment. And, but at the same time, who are are still struggling to figure out how to actually make money off of this. I mean, I, I forget who I was talking with who is making the comparison that with streaming right now, it's kind of like television in 1948. It's like, that's going to make so much money. It's really when, you know, and how, you know, people have made such a big deal over David Zaslav over at Warner brothers. Discovery is trying to get his arm around what? $48 million worth of debt. It's nothing compared to the 70 billion that Disney took on. That's it. Exactly. And I think people forget that sometimes. You know, there's all that money that Disney paid for Fox. Meanwhile, they're standing there looking, at least you know, when it comes to stateside, trying to figure out, well, how do we use the Fox film library, especially all of the R-rated material, when it comes to Disney Plus? You know, how do we get this stuff out there? Yeah, it was it was very interesting how he framed it as we need to make Disney Plus profitable, mm-hmm. not we need to get this debt load down from mm-hmm. the Fox. Merger. Yeah. Yeah. I forget who was talking with the investment community about that, but it's just, they were saying JPEG is sort of handcuffed to, that's a decision Bob Iger made. So it's just, this is your problem now, figure it out. And so that kind of explains the language that that Bob is using. It's more about, we have to make this thing, Disney Plus profitable, and we'll figure out the debt as we go. But given what's happening with the Disney stock price, That kind of explains where we are right now with the whole hiring freeze and some pretty tough layoffs, which between the layoffs at Twitter, the layoffs that were just announced for Metaverse, 
this is an interesting time to be trying to cover entertainment news. Well, I also thought, Jim, that it was interesting that he said that they're also going to spend less on, you know, productions and things. So I wonder if we're going to see more more diary of a wimpy kids and less turning reds. You know what I mean? I, I wonder what that is going to look like, but I've been hearing for months now that, that they've kind of been bracing for fiscal 23 to be significantly less, Mm. you know, extravagant than 22. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you bring up streaming and it's like Wakanda forever made 330 million worldwide this weekend. It did. It did. And it's hard to quantify what that even looks like in terms of a streaming success, Mm -hmm. you know, like what is Hocus, would Hocus Pocus have made them that much, you know, in the theaters if they had just put it out? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. You're right. It's kind of a, it's an interesting puzzle. And I don't envy people who are trying to figure out how to solve that puzzle. No, 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 absolutely. And when you stack that up against the the James Cameron comments just in the, the, the past week or so about... Here, the Avatar film series, which they're supposedly already shooting four and working on five, he, he put out, you know, sort of floated the idea, you know, it's it's possible that this could all end at three. This is very dependent on how people react to Avatar, you know, Avatar The Way of Water when that arrives in theaters come December this year. I, I think everybody's sort of looking over their shoulder at what just happened with Fantastic Beasts at Warner Brothers, where it's just sort of like, yeah, did we say five films? <laughs> we meant three. Speaking of films, November 15th, 1986. And this is one of these things where, thank God there are sites like This Day in Disney that list all of the bizarre little bits of history that sometimes falls through the crack. But listen to this, Drew. On November 15, 1986, Song of the South re-premiered in Atlanta, Georgia to celebrate that film's 40th anniversary. And by gubernatorial proclamation, the day of the premiere was declared Song of the South Day in Georgia. Dear God. (laughs) Wait, it gets better. The only reason... That Song of the South was sent back into theaters in November of 1986 was that Tony Baxter had come up with the idea for Zippity Doodah River Run, the, the flume ride for Disneyland, back in 1983. And and initially it stalled out in-house. And, and of course, everybody knows the story about Michael Eisner's first trip over to Imagineering in the fall of 1984. And he brings his son Brett with him, and Brett wanders away from the formal presentation that that the Imaginators are giving to Michael at that time, showing all the projects they have in development. He's like, Dad, look at this. This is cool. And he's standing there in front of the uh, the model for what eventually becomes Splash Mountain. And Eisner agreed. It looked cool. But at the same time, it's like, well, it's tied to the Song of the South movie, which didn't you guys just say that was going back into the film vault and never coming out? And it's like, well, yeah. And so Eisner actually, before he will officially greenlight construction of what eventually became known as Splash Mountain, he decided to put Song of the South back into theaters for a very limited run. I think it was only supposed to be out in theaters for two weeks. Let's put it out into theaters. And if anybody reacts strongly to this... 
the project's canceled. If we see people protesting outside of theaters, if we see angry newspaper articles, this is never going to happen. And so they put it out for that limited run in, in November of 86, and nothing happens. There's no well, controversy. something does happen, which is really sobering if you look at the box office for those weekends. It was mm-hmm. in the top five, like, for a few weeks after that. I mean, it was insane. I, you can't believe that this many people went out and saw this movie, Jim. I mean, it's crazy. There are exhibitors who would actually write to Disney and say, hey, why don't you let Song of the South out of the vault? People keep asking for this film. And you can actually read the pieces in Variety where Disney talks about, you know, as early as I want to say 71. They're about to open the Walt Disney World Resort. And, you know, the effect of, well, you know, Song of the South is in the Disney vault and it's going to stay there forever. And, and then in 1972, it's back out in the theaters. That was largely because the company was staring down the fact that, I remember Disney World at one point was supposed to cost $100 million to make. By the time they finished getting the resort open, they were at $400 million. And it's like, suddenly we're back to Bob JPEG's version out in the theaters. <laughs> and there was demand. And in fact, you were working in the company when during this time every year, uh, the folks at Walt Disney Home Entertainment would approach Bob Iger and lay the research down on the table to the effect of, this is how many units of Song of the South we know we could sell if we made this available as, well, I mean, they they, they started wanting to put it as a VHS, then, you know, then as a, a DVD and then a Blu-ray. And every time Iger would go home and watch the movie and come back and go, nope. No, with that, not on my watch. You know what I think ultimately killed that? Because they, yeah. were, they were very serious about it at various points, was mm-hmm. that they would have to put it on Disney+. Plus. You couldn't make it like a limited edition. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be a criterion, you know, they, they only sell it for six months kind of situation. Mm-hmm. It was, if it was on Disney+, Plus, it was going to live forever. And I think that staring down that inevitability was just... It's just too much. They would rather keep it away than have it actually exist somewhere in perpetuity. And I think that's the last thing that killed This it. is what I, I, I love about this feature animation Florida book coming out. The John Henry short that was produced, in fact, directed by Mark Henn. This short that was produced in 2000, this short was produced with the idea that it was going to be used to help do the, well, at that, that point they were, it was the VHS of Song of the South and I, I guess the DVD. But the idea was that at some point they had three different candidates who were going to be the host of this package film where it was going to be Song of the South, but they were also going to be doing John Henry. And uh, James Earl Jones was approached. I know that Whoopi Goldberg was approached. In fact, Whoopi Goldberg evidently was a very strong candidate because she actually has one of the world's largest collection of mammy dolls. I mean, she's very into African-American folk art and you know, the, some of the more offensive controversial items. And then Maya Angelou was also approached about possibly hosting this. But the idea was to have a celebrity host who would spend like five minutes introducing Song of the South and explaining that it was a film that was produced by Disney in the 40s and how Walt personally championed James Baskett being considered for an Academy Award and 
So the idea was to do an establishing setup for the film. Then you show Song of the South. And then the movie ends. And then you, the host continues to go, okay, that was Disney of 1940s. Disney of today, we're much more advanced. We get what's going on politically. And so we want to share the film that we made today that celebrates African-American heritage. And then that's John Henry. And then they begin to put together the presentation. And Michael Eisner is in charge of the company at this point. And Michael asked the question that ever ne that never occurred to anyone during this time. It's like, okay, so where are the African American artists that worked on John Henry? Can we can we bring those fo guys forward so we we can make them available to the press and that sort of thing? And there was like, well, there aren't any. And it's like, oh, you idiots! <laughs> you had an all white team of artists and animators and that sort of thing work on John Henry. And it's just sort of like, but, but this is, this is how, you know, you're going to make song of the South palatable to consumers of 2000. And it's like, oh. right. You know, and I, I listen, Jim, I have a story that is much more recent than that. And I, I will, I will try to, to get the details together, but okay. you'll be shocked at how, how soon it was, but you know, you bringing this up, it, it reminds me, mm -hmm. Uh, another thing that's coming out this week, mm -hmm. one of the 10,000 things, is Mickey's story of a mouse. And they actually do go into his kind of racist history there in Ooh. a very frank way. That's right. Mickey's melodrama. I'll be interested. You Watch it when it comes on this week and let me know what you think. But um, okay. yeah, it's... It's pretty good. Okay. We're very much looking forward to that. One other thing is just as we're headed out the door here. On November 13th, 1953... This is the day that Chuck Jones, the, the famous Warner Brothers animation, left Disney Studio to go back to work for Warner Brothers. Do you know this story at all? Or No. Oh, God. All right. So it's the early 1950s. The first 3D movies start coming out, like, like House of Wax. And Jack Warner, the then head of Warner Brothers Studios, looks at these. And he's, remember, Warner Brothers is the studio that was among the first to get into sound. And it's like, oh, wow, okay. We're all going to start making 3D movies now. Okay, anything that can't be done in 3D, we have to shut down now. And so he, he literally turns to the folks at Termite Terrace and says, okay, you made your last cartoon, goodbye. So Chuck Jones is it, you know, suddenly thrown out of work. And the folks at Disney, even at that point, Chuck Jones it had a, a reputation for being a, a master of, of comedy animation. It's like, Chuck Jones is on the market. Let's go grab him. So they hire him and bring him over to Disney. And for three months, he sits inside the building waiting for an assignment. And in fact, at, at, at one point, I want to say he's sharing a room with Ward Kimball. And I would have, to be a fly on the wall, to hear what Chuck Jones and Ward Kimball would have said to each other, these two masters of, of comedy animation. And I, I guess at that point, they were trying to get Chuck interested in taking on the goons in Sleeping Beauty. And Chuck looked at what was going on with the goons. And was like, eh. But he would show up every day at Disney, get a very nice check, but they couldn't figure out what to do with him. And then word came down that Jack Warner had changed his mind, that evidently the second or third movie in 3D had come out and hadn't done especially well at the box office. And 
he sort of reversed his grand proclamation that Warner Brothers was only going to make movies in 3D. So it's like, okay, we're back in the 2D business and call those cartoon guys back. We, we need some more theatrical shorts. And somebody called Chuck at Disney and he tendered his resignation and went back to work at Warner's. But I had never, I've never heard that story before, Jim. Yeah. I mean, and, and think about it. If somebody at Disney had just given Chuck Jones something interesting to do, Rather than, well, we hired him, and okay, we'll eventually figure out what he's going to do. In that short window of time that he worked for Disney, if they had given him a challenging assignment, what could we have gotten out of a Chuck Jones who worked for the Walt Disney Company? So, <laughs> a, real, a real philosophical quandary for the end of the episode, Jim. Eh, well, you know, that, that's, we try. We try. And, and <laughs> on the other hand, if you are not listening to Drew's Like the Fuse, just recently, weren't you guys listed as one of the top entertainment podcasts? We were by by Vulture, uh, New York Magazine. Yeah, yeah. Top, the, we were one of the thirteen best movie podcasts, which is amazing. I, I mean, it, I I can't believe that. So yeah, it was weirdly proud by saying, so, "Hey, I work with that guy." You know, <laughs> uh, so but he's a friend from work. There we go. That's what you said. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, Thor, yeah. Thor Ragnarok joke. Um, okay. So seriously, be sure you're checking out uh, the Drew's Light Diffuse podcast. Now, yeah, we also have a couple other podcasts here. Uh, we got uh, Disney Dish, which I do with Len Testa. We, we likewise have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams. Brian Gunn and I just yesterday recorded a new Looking at Lucasfilm. And I kind of feel like telling people, even when it comes to, to Twitter, it's like, hey, run into that burning house. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell folks where you are or more to the point, where are you headed? Well, I mean, I'm at Twitter now, but yeah, I, I don't think that that is very long for this earth. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm not going to Mastodon or whatever because I looked at that and it looked like an absolute nightmare. But mm -hmm. Yeah, on Twitter and, and Instagram right now, Drew tailored like a tailored shirt. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how long that lasts, Jim, until the next until the next rodeo, I guess. I don't know. I don't know where where we're going next. Good lord. And that's a thing. For for so many of us, Twitter is is kind of how we reach out, how we do business. I mean, that's I I you know, it, this is a a tool I've been using for years now, and it just the notion of what happens when the tool that you do your job with goes away. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as Drew mentioned, uh, you know, uh, you can find us at Twitter and, and on Instagram is Jim Hill Media and, and on Facebook is as Jim Hill Media News. But I guess for now that's going to do it. But I do want to remind you one last time that again, that, uh, what is it? The Mary Lesher book. One mm -hmm. more time. Okay, Mary Lesher's the Disney Animation Renaissance Behind the Glass at Florida Studios. Uh, available now, so go grab yourself a copy, and Drew and I will talk about it, this book, at length on a future episode of Fine Tuning.